Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, where we're talking all about Indigenous Australia, we're going to be focusing in on archaeology, on several sites, and what these sites can tell us about Indigenous Australians, their heritage, their culture, and how they've been able to live on the continent of Australia for hundreds, for thousands of years. It's absolutely remarkable. But we're also going to be focusing in on epistemologies, on world views, on this idea particularly of caring for country and conserving these incredibly important indigenous sites in Australia today. Now joining me to talk through all of this, I was delighted to get on the podcast Dave Johnston, an indigenous archaeologist currently based in Canberra. Dave, he's a wonderful chap. It was great to get him on the pod. He also recently starred in a documentary on History Hit all about Indigenous Australia, a history of Indigenous Australia, which you can check out today on History Hit TV. But without further ado, to talk all about Indigenous Australian archaeology and so much more, here's Dave. Dave, Great to have you on the podcast, brother. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Tristan, absolute pleasure, my friend. Yeah, looking forward to sharing some views of Aboriginal Australia. Absolutely. I mean, Indigenous Australians, they have a history not just stretching back thousands of years, but tens of thousands of years. Time immemorial, as we say, Tristan. And I think, first of all, Dave, for all of this, a welcome to country. Would you like to lead the way with this? Yeah, thanks. So, folks... When discussing or visiting places in Australia or communities, it is custom for our elders of a particular site or area to welcome guests, to do what we call a welcome to country. So just in a general, if this is going around the world, I can, in a capacity, a generalist one, say welcome to listening to my, and it's only my view of the history or ancient history or the archaeology of Aboriginal Australia. But firstly, what I do is pay acknowledgement. I'm a Torres Strait Islander man with Aboriginal ancestry from Bradbroke Island or the Quandamooka with connections to the Torres Strait. However, I'm living in the last 30 years down in Canberra. So I'm on the lands of the Ngunnawal Nambri people recording this today. And as you come to visit Australia and peoples, you'll be getting a welcome from the custodians from that particular part of the country you visit. As way of introduction, as Indigenous Australians, 
generally welcome all visitors coming to a country or listening. And we do either a welcome to country or an acknowledgement. And given that I'm from North Queensland with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander connections and living in, in down the south, I'll do acknowledgements today from the Ngunnawal Ngambri country, the peoples for the area around Canberra. So I welcome you all today as an Indigenous Australian to um, a podcast which is reflecting my views on Aboriginal history. Brilliant, Dave. And let, let's keep on yourself at the start here, because I'd love to learn a bit more about your background in this uh, in particular. I mean, how did you rise to becoming, to getting to where you are today, this as an archaeologist in Canberra? I've had a, a, a kind of a unique background and family upbringing and, and a, a wonderful educational opportunity. I'm very privileged from all those who've given, afforded me levels of education. I started my journey in the world. I born in the 60s, but I'm on the tail end of what they call the stolen generations. Australia had a policy from 1911 to 1971 where children of mixed descent, a white father, a white mother, were known in those days as the old terms half-caste or quarter-caste, which we don't use today and we find quite offensive. But there was a policy of Australia that coincided with the white Australia policy of, well, forcibly removing Aboriginal children by the tens of thousands from their parents and adopting them into white families to get rid of their Aboriginality, so to speak, so they can grow up white in a white room without any family customs. And I'm on the tail end of it. And while I had a white mum, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander father, I wasn't forcibly taken away out of the arms of my mum. She was a fine Catholic. And so they adopted me and my sister out. And I ended up in the system because I was a coloured kid, so they speak, or was I was an Indigenous kid, into the system of the adoptions for kids of mixed descent. And so I was adopted into a beautiful family, the Johnstons, Trevor and Kath Johnson, non-Indigenous, who over their time adopted five children, had one of their own, so six children. This is my family, the Johnstons. And we're from all different parts of Australia or North Queensland. And they also fostered many. I grew up in a beautiful family, lots of love, lots of support, not knowing who I was. In fact, I only just found out this year. But I had a wonderful education through my mother who my father was a lighthouse keeper an electrician and i grew up on the great barrier reef up and up in the torres strait islands and worked living on five different lighthouse stations and um, did correspondence school of the air went to got the opportunity to go to boarding schools into university and i had an interest on the lighthouses living there uh, not having much else to do except fish and fight with my brothers play a thousand games of Monopoly. I was exploring the caves, got interested in my cowboy outfit, as I wore in those days as a kid, and explored the caves. My mum said to me one day, Kath said, maybe you'd like to be an archaeologist. And I said, oh, what's that? And she said, being a good English teacher, look it up into the encyclopedia, which we had for our correspondence schooling. And I went over and dusted off the 1958 or 68 Encyclopedia Britannica and read what an archaeologist or archaeology what archaeology does. And I thought, oh, that's what I want to do at 11 years old. So I threw away my cowboy outfit and stole one of dad's trowels. And my career just went from there. I went to University at the Australian National University, did my honours there. I got I was able to do a scholarship where I did my master's at the Institute of Archaeology, University College London. And that opportunity gave me a ticket to ride. It was that university at the ANU that I came across a number of 
mature age Indigenous students. There are only five Indigenous students at the Australian National University in 1986 when I started. They're still my friends and colleagues today, my great mentors. A lot of us studied archaeology. They taught me the politics of reality as I was coming to out in the world in my little sheltered lighthouse in an adopted family, not realising what reality was out there. So it gave me a ticket ride. So I've been doing an advocate for heritage along the years, mentored, taught by not only my beautiful Johnston family, but the many Indigenous elders, communities, who have also adopted and mentored me along the way. So I'm a product of that, very privileged with the education and love that I've been given. So I've my career has developed as a researcher, but also as an advocate for Aboriginal heritage protection and management. I've been working and doing that to this day, over 35 years. Dave, we'll definitely go back to your mission as the podcast goes along, but you also hold this staggering record as the first academically qualified Indigenous archaeologist. That is the truth, but it's sort of irrelevant in such that, you know, as I came through, there are many of our elders and uh, uncles and aunties who've been know have more, more knowledge of sites and places in their country than I. And you know, I'm just by Western academic thing. Yes, I am, and I am in, in that sense the first academic qualified archaeologist with my honours degree in archaeology and anthropology. But you know, there were many before me, and one of the things we always do is recognise that. So I don't make a big issue of that. Mm. <laughs> but yes, yes, I am. Fair enough. Absolutely. Good to point that out. I mean, if we now look at that, let's really turn into the archaeology now. Let's look into the archaeology of Australia. I mean, what do we know about the first people who came to Australia, Dave? What I love about studying archaeology, both as an Indigenous one now, as well as a, you know, as a social scientist, as an archaeologist, having those two hats. Firstly, for many and traditional Aboriginal community groups or many Aboriginal people to today, we are from this country. We've always been here. That's an indigenous view. Everyone has the different aspects. We are from this earth. We go back to it. And well, we, you know, we fit into this world and we have been here for time immemorial. From a science point of view, and sometimes having scientists saying, oh, you are from out of Africa, the out of Africa view, and here we are traveling, can be offensive to indigenous peoples. So I'm saying that with a clarification that there's an indigenous worldview and many views from within our many languages within Australia and that may cause offense or have a different worldview to what science and the western academy see but if we do that and I have a hat with that one we do know that there is an out of Africa migration and that we do know that from a western side peopling of Australia occurred well between 65 70,000 years when the ice age was such that the waters were locked up and there was a bridge up in um, Asia between the mainland of Australia, connected up to Papua New Guinea, of about 90 kilometres, which in any time, if you go back in time, is one of the greatest human feats of transferring across a waterscape at that stage. So there would have needed to be basic canoes, rafts to sustain a population or people in that would then come to Australia. So that's a Western, we're getting dates. We know that we have genetics similar in Syria at 70,000 years. But for many Aboriginal people, that's irrelevant. You know, we don't need science to justify who we are. That's certainly for sure. You know, we are from this land and we are the oldest continuing cultural group on earth of modern Homo sapiens sapiens. And with that knowledge and survival abilities brings the great knowledge and connection to country and connection to self that the Indigenous Australians have. 
So very briefly, the indigenous view is that we've been here forever. A Western view is yes, we came through from Asia, through from Syria, originally earlier forms coming, migrating from Africa. That's the latest science view. And, you know, we can fit in with both worldviews. I mean, and, and so, Dave, what's this close... Would you mind uh, explaining a bit more, elaborating a bit more on this close connection between Aboriginal communities and caring for country? We love and use that word and share it, caring for country. Caring for country really is... is, is and I, look, I speak for myself here only. Indigenous peoples, we all have different views and language things and aspects to our knowledge of country. But as a whole, we are from the land. We are part of the natural environment. It's a cultural one because we're part of that. And we have our human brains that allow us to expand and do other things other animals or things can't do. But we're part of that system. And we have come through from the ancestors who were part of the dreaming of, of the creation of the world. And then we are here and a continuation of that today. We have, we live, we survive, we have to know our land to survive. We have to have laws that fit in to allow for the survival, to allow for times of resource or catastrophe. So in order to be in a harmonic state as best, you need to be one with nature. You need to be, know of it. You need to have laws that allow for your survival, where the water is, where the foods are. The networks, when you have shortages, that you can see your fellow neighbours to have permissions to access their resources. So there's a whole range of factors. But it's about caring for self, caring for family, caring for country, for your future. We all have an obligation to leave our place in a form of use for our future generations, knowing our ancestors had done that before. And that's often taught in our laws of what the rules that we have to do. One thing about Aboriginal Australia, Indigenous Australians, is that there is a place for everyone. Everyone has a role. No one's left out. Some have greater roles than others, depending on their own capabilities, which is a human thing. But um, yeah, we all have a role and that role collectively is that none of us are particularly important, but we have a role to play while we're here. And that's about caring for the country because we are country. This idea of caring for country uh, will come back time and time again in our podcast, no doubt. And uh, keeping on the ancestors now, Dave, let's go as far back as we can from an archaeological perspective. What are some of the earliest archaeological sites we know of at the moment in Australia? Okay, this is exciting too. So when we... Blackfellas say we've been in here from time immemorial. Please believe us. The dating techniques go back older in more and more time whilst they become more developed. Carbon 14 has dating has a limit of you know 39, 36 to 39, 40,000, where all the carbon elements are out released from the organic material. So it's it's a bottleneck then. We have thermoluminescence and other forms of dating which have developed. And through that process, we see this dating of Australian, Indigenous Australian sites and places getting older. So today we have, oh Christ, we've got many bottlenecked at the carbon-14 dating around 40,000. That's where the Lake Mungover Landra Lakes areas for the relocation, or is there, the elders say, the appearance coming back of Mungo Lady, the skeletal remains of their ancestors. Mungo Lady come, being exposed on the, the ancient lake shores, windblown, forming lunettes, the old Wallandra Lake system that dried up about 40,000 years ago. So 
where there's a bottleneck there. The sites there are probably a lot older too. We have Majabibi up in Northern Territory with recent dates of 65,000 years. And remember though, folks, that, okay, we've got a date here at near an axe at 65,000. That's wonderful. Still, the elders say, well, you know, we have been here forever. Do you surprise? 60,000 years for any indigenous or any human mind is forever. I mean, remember that Indigenous people's concept of time is not linear, like a Western mind. Oh, my God, that's so long. It's contemporaneous. Events and knowledge of the past are contemporaneous today. So, you know, the pain of the stolen gems doesn't go away. It's still there. The responsibility to look after and care for country or our ancestor remains, even if they're 60,000 years old, 40,000 years old, say, from Orlando are still important as our custodial roles today to care for country and care for our ancestors. So those ancestors are as relevant today, even if we don't have, from a Western side, a genetic, there might be 10,000 generations or 1,000 generations. That's irrelevant. So other sites, we've got sites in WA all over that we are only just touching the iceberg, tip of the iceberg for the amazing variety and range of Indigenous sites. But remembering my science hat on that, when our peoples were coming into the country at 70, 60, 70,000 years ago, these dates may change later if we get more information, that the landscape, the water ice was locked up. So the areas that people were covering on the coast back then are now underwater. So a lot of our older sites for the coastal sites are now underwater. So we've still got lot old sites inland. We're only at the tip of the iceberg. But as our people, elders say, you know, well, no, dates are irrelevant. We Time immemorial. When we said time immemorial back in the, the 50s and 60s and we had dates then at, at 60, 12,000 years and places like Clogs Cave, that was thought to be old then. But it just get, got kept getting older. We're not surprised. That is time immemorial. Dave, it is absolutely fascinating. And I know I'm now approaching it from a linear perspective, from a, a Western perspective, but like comparing those dates like 60,000 years ago to, for instance, I did a podcast not too long ago about the oldest known human footprints in North America. And that's like 22,000 years ago. And then you look at, so the oldest known cave depictions of an animal and cave painting from Sulawesi, perhaps 45,000 years ago. So to hear those numbers that you were saying there is just mind-blowing it it really is when you're looking at it from a linear perspective but i guess as you say gone go dave it is exciting and that's why our places and our connections through that time there's been you know events of water rising and then later european arrival and destruction of our communities to such extent we have survived and the knowledge of the connection to country in our way across the country of all the many different language groups is something that to be celebrated, acknowledged by the world because that knowledge there about caring for country, coal burning of landscapes so we don't have these horrendous fires, surviving off the land, looking after the country, leaving it in a better place for kids are skills that we need today more than ever as our human abilities through our minds and this, well, later as the human population or peopling have gone to a dizzy heights with a supposed um, skill base. We've got climate change now because of our use of carbon to that extent that we do need to go back. We need to care for our world, care for country. Why not come to Indigenous Australians to, to seek some humility of how to do that? 
but we need to do it urgently. Let's keep on this, these archaeological sites, because something which is really interesting when looking at indigenous archaeology, Dave, is that there seem to be various types of sites that survive. Oh, absolutely. Look, OK, so archaeology is the study of what people left behind. So, you know, in Australia, our physical sites, we have two types, the physical sites that you can see and the intangible, our dreaming sites, the stories created to a place. It might be a mountain cliff or a river, but it has connections. And they're the intangible, but it's the oral histories that go with it. They're important, probably even more so than some of our physical. But folks, we aren't like Europe. Two things I want to say. Well, we are like Europe in that we have as many countries within Australia or language groups. If you can picture Europe with all our, you know, they estimate up to 350, 500, some used to say up like 750 language groups, of which there's only 17 languages surviving today with bits and pieces and we're having a revival. But Indigenous Australia, certainly time of contact, was like Europe, many different areas. But what we didn't have was the built environment. We didn't have monuments. We didn't have sites. We didn't do, you know, we didn't become these, they call the modern civilizations with all the, the infrastructure. However, our footprints through time are in the sands and in our landscapes, of which we call a cultural landscape. So going out as an archaeologist or as Indigenous Australian, knowing your country, you see the landscape and you see the imprints or footprints of our ancestors in the past there. So our archaeology is different to, you know, anywhere in Europe, of course, but with our lifestyles. And the sites that are reflected and the physical ones are the representations of people camping, burials. So the types are for camping. You have areas with artifacts scattered, stone tools where they're representing a range of tools being used for various purposes for hunting kangaroos, this or that, or might have been, you know, making boomerangs, wooden artifacts, the tools that made those. That's what we interpret it when we see that, you know, say a, a, what we call an open artifact scatter. Of course, where people lived, people died. So we have birthing trees. We have areas where they were marked, where the women would go, or special areas. Obviously, there's scarred trees that have marks the number of children born by a particular family, the women in that family. There are other things. That's women's business. But there are burial grounds everywhere. So people died, thousands, not marked by graves might be marked by trees, might be marked with something, or exposed when their soils erode. Some tens of thousands of years, such as like the ancient lakes around Lake Mungo, with the Kasto, the ancestors of the Muddy Muddy people, the Nyampa people, and the Barkindji people, and in particular the clans of the Yitta Yitta people, who are the Kitchenites for there, were buried. The people are still there today. Other sites, hunting hides, you could have uh, where people would hide to hunt animals, piles of stones. Fish traps to trap fish. Other areas like the Budge Bimerian Victoria or the Goodidge Mara people produced kilometres of eels traps to direct the eels so they could net them. Eels traps? Eel traps, yes. Wow. But they also had smoke houses to smoke them as well. So these are unique little, I wouldn't call them idiosyncratic air, uh, examples and in areas, but they were unique. We're all very different. And now the richness of our complex knowledge of country and an adaptation of times of toughness or resources is little understood. We survived and thrived over, over millennium, at millennia. And despite being nearly wiped out by smallpox and the role of Europeans and the massacres and taking us all away, etc., we're still here strong today. And that's, you can hear, in my passion for maintaining and managing Australia's heritage, something I still think we have a long way to go to recognise, respect it. And as I argue, our Australia's Indigenous heritage 
well, I feel Australia's Indigenous peoples, our heritage and knowledge to country is Australia's greatest unrealised asset. If only Australians and the world understand it, learn it more, and appreciate it for what it is. And as a country that has 65,000 years of a tree root of history and heritage is that is now a multicultural country today, which Australia is, you know, is the tree roots of a modern nation going forward as a multicultural country and community that respects people, respects country, respects ourselves and respects the future of our children. I think it'd be a great Indigenous-led leadership uh, direction for Australia and all Australians. Back to the other sites, there's, oh, scarred trees, shell middens, all the coastal, anywhere people ate, left refuse this there, the stone tools, the shellfish, the fish bones, the whale bones, the, you know, that's on the coastal areas, inland, there were grinding stones that were used to grind the seeds to make like a dough or a damper or a little form of bread all over the country. Axes, stone axes, the most valued stone tools type within Australia, because with a, a stone axe from a heavy, dense volcanic stone like a metadolorite or some high, hence heavy, dense volcanic, you could grind that stone down with water on a sandstone bed near the creek with water over three days to make a ground edge axe or hatchet. And that preform is goes back throughout millennia. We continue it here today. The difference is they're made out of steel. We still have the preform 70,000 year ago by humanity's axe type. And they're all over Australia. So you, they were so valuable because if you wanted to make a spear or a boomerang or a didgeridoo or something of wood, you weren't going to use your hands or your teeth to make do it. So you're going to use a heavy duty axe that could be half on a blank of wood strapped in with some resin and a strap to make your hand axe. So of course, that comes with all the knowledge of using all these tools, which is part of your initiation and learning as a child to do all this to fit into your economy, so to speak. So the site types that are out there represent the range of activities, how people lived. And of course, there's the famous rock art that's used for both ceremonial, social initiation and other purposes, depending on the Aboriginal language group that was there. So... There's so much there, and we're still learning today. My main call as, a, as an activist, if you like, or a manager of Indigenous heritage, as an Indigenous archaeologist, is to try to stop our heritage to be dumbed down, heritage legislation to be dumbed down, and our sites to be destroyed, that they will allow our rich ancient history to be destroyed at the level. I mean, David, it is really interesting when you look at the unique nature of some of these sites, like the information that, that you can learn from it. I just love this idea. He said some of these unique ideas where you, said you have examples of burial, where you have examples of settlement, and then you have not too far away, you have an example of eel traps. So you can learn more about food collection uh, from the natural environment, which these communities did. Absolutely. And then there's another whole realm about, well, if areas where they've got these excess or have excess on, say, for fishing or having that, where there might be resource poor in, say, for getting steel axes, or sorry, for getting stone axes, or there may be no eels or fish, or there might be shortages of food over time. Remember, we're going through a thousand years, so there's environmental change and climate change through the ice ages and changes, so, uh, not to the speed it's going now. And so there's another whole element of where you had to have, and this is the beauty of anywhere in the world, of human dynamics, the mind, and our social interaction and connections and responsibilities. So that in Indigenous Australia, over time, if you had a shortage, you needed to have a relationship with your neighbours or nearby groups and actually work on that so that, A, you could exchange, well, what we call exchange, we don't use the word trade. Trade is just a, I'll swap you this pen 
for your, you know, rubber. And because I haven't got one, I need it. But what we're actually doing is that we use the word exchange. And that's from our, one of Australia's great archaeologists, a first female archaeologist, Emerita Professor Isabel McBride, where she worked with a lot of communities. And the notion that need an object rather than just a trade, there was an exchange, there was a relationship, which is so important among Indigenous Australian communities and their neighbours, because you need to have a relationship to, because one of the biggest things and we did it so well with our laws throughout the country and often punishable by death was that we had to marry outside of our genealogical family group. So you needed to marry and have relations so that your daughters could be married out with the other language group or sub-dialect groups across the way and vice versa where you're bringing in marriage members depending on your lineage. So that was an important aspect, but also for, oh, I don't have any stone tools. Can I swap you? I've got a heap of uh, stingray bars, which we can use for spears. So what's not seen, but reflected in the archaeology sometimes is where the objects that have been moved over place over time. And that often reflects, well, they could have spiritual other ceremonial association, but you could have a utilitarian purpose for a stone point or an axe that you didn't have in your country. So you would have to have a relationship that you could trade or exchange something. But that's why we had the big ceremonial gatherings where both initiations could occur between the different tribe men's, the young boys going to be initiated as men in their first stage, women doing theirs, marriages occurring between the intertribal groups, exchanging that, sorting out problems or issues if there's any arguments going on. But occasions were also times of plenty to support all these people. And all around the country, we have different examples of plenty in the resource, food resources that sustained a larger population of peoples coming together for these ceremonial exchanges, initiations, etc. So in the Canberra region with the Northern Lambry peoples, the Bogon moth he came in and gestated in the millions. So people collected them, singed their wings and put them on the fire. And they were these wonderful protein-rich moths bodies that were eaten so after two weeks everyone was glistening with oil and lovely tans and oily looking very fit but they were able to say in other areas there would be sea mullet down the south coast of new south wales in queensland the bunya pine up north queensland the cycad pine was used other areas on the coast with the whale had been beached that would be a time of plenty so it's knowing country to fit into all these activities which had a domestic a very strong social domestic and, and, and a cultural sort of connection and then today we see these what's left over of these great survival abilities and skills over millennia are the sites that we have today and find. And because they're not monuments or in the library, they're often in our natural landscape. So we have to go out and look them. Or oh, there's areas of exposure, erosion, which bring out some of these ancient findings of, of the past. And whereas archaeologists say, oh, here I discovered this. Well, there's a more respectful way rather than a, an egotist. <laughs> I found this. It's about, as other the elders at Volandra say, for example, Auntie Lottie Williams used to say, Oh, this is the ancestors coming back to us to tell us something. Or our artifacts are coming. They came with a purpose. There's a meaning behind it. They were discovered. We didn't discover them. They exposed themselves to us. There's different worldviews and everything. How can toilet training cows help save the planet? Should we start renting our clothes? And why on earth is Beds from the Happy Mondays now keeping bees? I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. And these are just a few of the questions we'll be answering on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Join me on the farm to hear from the likes of the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith, 
Professor Dieter Helm on how to stop climate change, and my old friend, Jamie Oliver. Listen to On Jimmy's Farm now, wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. I mean, uh, let's keep on these worldviews now, Dave, because you said archaeology seems to be really important in learning more about these ancient uh, indigenous uh, communities. But that's only part of it. We also have stories that have been passed down through generations, some remarkable stories. So just on that, firstly, as I've touched on it, one is the laws, not just stories, L-O-R-E, the laws of the land that kept us alive, which is based on survival, based on having the best interest of your community, caring for country and your future and your kids' future. So there are laws, the stories that are associated, all the laws in our dreaming that tell us how to act and what to do. You can't marry your sister. There's a law about that. There's a maybe a connecting story that gives you a moral impetus, why or a punishable by death to breach these laws that keep us alive. So there's that. But then we are famed. One thing in Australia, when you study archaeology, and I did both archaeology and anthropology. So archaeology, as I said, in a nutshell, is the study of of the objects and things and ways of life people left behind. Anthropology is the study of living peoples or past peoples of how they thought, lived, interacted, what their laws and beliefs were, etc. 
So in Australia, it's vitally important to have an understanding of anthropology about our peoples, our beliefs. Living Australians, we need to have our protocol to being Indigenous culturally competent so we're not insulting Indigenous peoples by blowing up some of our most significant sacred sites. That would be a good lesson 101. But what comes through there, sorry, back onto the stories, is the, our oral history. And this is the point. Our peoples have a, a rich, to this day, oral history. We're storytellers. But there's more than just having a fun story. Oh, we've got some great uncles who do that. But it's about learning. It's about connecting. We have areas with song lines that allow us through song to connect to our stories and laws and histories and the moral base or a survival base. So oral history is important, but we also know these oral histories go back so far in time. Our dreaming stories and laws go back beyond our time. They were there in place of which we're following, you know, and we're still continuing. But there are also other oral history stories about how the world's created, but we know from a science side now, that if it's related to a geological event, such as an ice age, where water's rising because there's ice is being melting at that phase. And we have one, for example, I can use with permission from Aunty Caroline Briggs, as the Bumurang elder of the traditional country of Melbourne across to the eastern coast of Wilson's Prom. And they talk about the story, and with her permission, I can relate how they refer to what is now known in the Melbourne Bay or Port Phillip Bay about 11,000 to 9,000 years ago. The sea level was another 90 feet and there was a waterfall. There was the Yarra River flowed down and then it came to a cliff and it was a waterfall going down 90 feet. Well, the Boomerang people remember the waters flooding within a hundred years or short period of time, over a couple of hundred years, till it came up to the cliff edge and flooded the valley, now known today as Port Phillip Bay. So in their living memory, they remember that and how they associate this actual ice age melting phase, well, not the ice age, the melting of it. And that actually represents, from a science knowledge point of geological time, the cusp between Pleistocene era, around 9 to 10, 11,000 years, to the Holocene. And that was like, okay, ice age, Melting, warmer period, waters rising, stabilisation about 5,000 years. So that story in an Indigenous oral histories is remembered and interpreted this way, that the Bumurong people were breaking the laws and what we say running amok of the laws of Bunjil, who is the creator who travels as an eagle in the Bumurong country. And they went, oh, my God, the water, our lands are flooding. And the bells of people yelled out across the land, Bunjil, please stop, don't drown us, please. And Bunjil said, well, okay, this is Dave's interpretation of Aunty Caroline's story. So I can just bear with me. <laughs> Bunjil goes, all right, you're breaking the laws. If you obey the laws, so their, their edict is to obey the laws of Bunjil, look after the children and not harm the lands of Bunjil. So you need to obey the laws of Bunjil, get back, behave yourselves, and I'll stop. So Bunjil threw his spear into the ground, and the water stopped. And the people rejoiced and have been behaving ever since. That's oral history. That happened 11,000 years ago, but the story's there. And that's mirrored across the country, and there's others, and the, the Gunai, Kurnai people, and they have a story about the collapse of a mountain and now of Lake Tali Khan. And I'll let them tell their story, but I had permission with the Uncle Albert Mullet and the elders in the day to do a project around there to stop the visitors there because five, I think 7,000 years after the mountain collapse and, and had landed and killed many Gunai people, changed the water course. It is still a sacred site of mourning today. And that's another example of the mourning and contemporaneity of the grief and loss of for Aboriginal people. It doesn't go away. 
those stories are important. It's passed down through oral history, but we remember these things. And it's also really striking with those stories, Dave. Once again, we come back to this idea of the natural landscape, whether it's a flood or, or, say, or Lake Talikang, this idea of caring for country. Absolutely. I mean, I've been trained in Westway too, and I was being adopted out. I grew up my family, and then I've learned my knowledge working, doing nearly 3,000 projects across the country, work with elders teaching me and showing me. And that's my roles now. Use my brilliant skills being taught on country by elders over my career, having the love and the support and education by my adopted family. And all those who have mentored me gives me this privilege to go out to use the skills that I've been given, gifted, to try to protect, manage, to do the best we can to have this recognised. This notion of caring for country comes across it all. And when you go out with elders and you see they know their country, a lot of our elders, people can't read a topographical gastral map because they don't see their land in lines like that. But they have more knowledge. I get lost more than any elder does because they know every feature and thing. There's ways of seeing country, reading it or knowing it. Other elders you're out on country haven't been back because it's been locked up as properties. I've been with elders where they go, oh, this country hasn't been looked after, meaning it hasn't had regular annual burns, cold burns, cultural burns to keep the density of the brush down and that so new life can come out. So they look like matches and next thing you know, there's a big flame as they're burning off. So there's so much more. And, you know, as Indigenous Australians, as the world opens, we welcome people to come and visit us join some of the tours that our many communities are offering to show country. Because one thing we argue is that if you're comfortable in yourself, in out in nature, you get an appreciation of self, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you have a connection. And that's what we call, what I call our definition of bliss or peace. When you're at peace with yourself in nature, it's not all about that fast or it's not all about money. It's about the peacefulness of you being here in that time. And You've come from the past and those in the past, but you go and pass it on. And that's a world for you. I think you could write religions about. Well, Dave, you know, as for someone like me, learning about this stuff, learning about these stories for the first time, they are so interesting to listen to and to hear about that perspective. So I can imagine it's a completely different perspective when you've heard these stories uh, for a long time and those are passed down through generations. But at the same time, they, they still have their magic about them. I mean, if we do go back to the, uh, let's go back to some archaeological sites across Australia now, related to ancient Indigenous populations, ancient Indigenous communities, are there any uh, sites from across the continent that you find particularly striking, illuminating? I I say across the continent because when we, sometimes we forget with Australia just how huge it is, the land is. It is so huge, but it's also huge in time. And so, I mean, we don't talk about that, but if you say, oh, it's so expanse, yes, but it, equally in time, are people being here, surviving geological epochs, changes and ice ages and that, water rise and, and how we survive and adapt for the advent of Europeans in the country, one of our greatest achievements. So for me, there are so many sites and I've seen a lot, experienced a lot, but for me, the excitement is this. One is that we're not even, we haven't touched the tip of the iceberg yet here. So there's a lot more... Um, new techniques in time. So therefore, we need to keep some of these old sites with deposits for archaeological testing for later, which reveal that much more. For example, resin analysis has come through in recent years in Australia where we can analyse stone tools that are in a conserved area or in a rock shelter or something. When they're excavated, you can get the analysis to see what plants or animals, blood samples we use, what's being hunted, what seeds. And it just opens up our knowledge so much more to neural histories and what we know of an axe. 
it's what's on it. That's another area. So there's so much more still to go. So rather than there will be new sites and new things that have afford the opportunity of having a cultural collection of all past there. And but it's it's the technologies how we interpret it with our elders and elders, of course, with our permissions. So one of the things is we have to have heritage legislation that isn't allowing the unaudited destruction, and that's what's happening at the moment. The other thing then is the whole wide range of types, but we're discovering new site types because classically, you know, we go and speak to our elders and they're telling us about the types of range of things. Classical science, Western science, has a definition, the popularity of rock art being the main thing. But we've actually, there are a lot of site types and such as ring trees, with trees have been human modified, has a ring, which often signifies burials. There's a lot of site things that are out there that aren't in the textbooks, archaeological textbooks yet, because it's often known by Indigenous peoples and not in the Western universities. So the other side of it is the more Indigenous engagement at universities, respect for Indigenous cultural protocols and opportunities for Indigenous Australians to be, like myself, recognises as archaeologists and be afforded opportunities within the universities, we can bring our elders and our knowledge to it, which will, on the pages that were once printed what archaeology is, it can add volumes to that knowledge and based on lived experience. Now, Dave, I do need to ask about one particular site, just because of how well known it is, how popular a site it is. And that is, of course, the site of Uluru. And Dave, why, first of all, is this site so important to Indigenous Australians? There's two ways to answer that. One, if you're a traditional owner and a law person from that area, that's the key, I'm not. So I will answer it this way as an Indigenous Australian with respect to the people's knowledge. Uluru, for all Australians, is seen as the red centre of Australia. It represents Australia because it's right in the middle. That's that side. But we do know that the area is so significant to the people of that area. It actually is the centre hub for the peoples of that central area. It has spiritual connections and I'll allow them to tell that story because it is theirs. But it is symbolic of Australia. So that has contemporary significance. But we should definitely, where in time you could do a story where you need to consult with the custodians of the Uluru Rock for its meaning beyond just a layman's view that I'm allowed to present here. So we'd be contacting, let's say, to learn more about the ancient history of that site, you would have to contact the custodians of that area, of that piece of land. Because it's not appropriate for someone like me to know all their sacred law because you have to go through initiation and be from that country. But it's iconic in, I cannot say, as a layman there, it's iconic for all Australians and for the people there because it stands out in the desert areas and is known as the world's largest monolith. But then there's another whole dimension of which the law people for that country can tell. Let's go on to some other themes then, Dave, which is about Aboriginal astronomy. And it really was incredibly important to the whole, the whole culture, to the whole societies of ancient Indigenous Australians. Absolutely. I mean, when we talk about worldviews, Indigenous worldview, besides looking at books or things which we didn't, your worldview is not just looking down, looking across, it's looking up. And also your world thoughts hold your world that is yours. But many people looked up at night. The elders of Marnham Land came down to Fraser Island, well now called Fraser Island, of the Bajala people. And they had these giant Saturnay trees that are there that were used for making huts and shelters and later by Europeans for hutting and that. And these giant trees, 90 feet 
giant Saturdays and the, the elders from Arnhem Land who hadn't seen trees that high used to lie down on the ground and they called them lie down, look up trees because they'd never seen anything. You know, we don't spend as humans looking up in the ground from the ground upwards. But when you do so every night around the fires or hours away from the city lights and see these amazing stars that are across the, all of the country, there's no surprising that our grooming creation stories as you look up and wonder that revolved into the various stories that are connected to various groups around the country as they are across the world and around the world as they were throughout time. So that's the different. We have our unique ones. What's also interesting are some of our communities with Chinese origins or, or connections from the Chinese days have both Asian stories of through their, their biological lineage of the Asian stories connection, and then they have their Aboriginal version of that. And I've seen that in play. So there's a lot of knowledge, there's a lot of connections. We seem to do it very well. But of course, they're represented in the dreamings, and you can see similarities across east, north, and south. I'll leave that to the lawmen to fit to, and women to talk about. So yes, they're reflected in rock art. They're protected in artworks on your bodies and things as well, and in law, so religion and law. But today, we think about the stars. We kind of have to go outside at night and oh, look up or we'll get a telescope. But for many years, if the night sky was a large part of your daily life or sleep, when you're looking up, plenty of time to think and wonder and also reflect on the stories that have been passed down as the connections and the meaning of them. And people like my friend Pete Swanton, you know, is bringing both the science hat and the Indigenous one together. That knowledge, that connection because also stars are still for Aboriginal people are a guiding point for walking as you're travelling through country too, as well as the physical landscape in front of you. Well, Dave, you also mentioned their religion and law. Could you uh, elaborate a bit more on that and what we know about that? I think when we define, you know, religion as Catholic, but, you know, we have religion defined by this and that, we have more reflections of our ancestors who created the war, who've left us laws, and now here we are today, continuing that on. And that might be in time and memorial or the ancestors of the dreaming spirits goes back in time. That's why we've been here forever. They're still relevant today. We're still here. It means forever. So rather than just call it strictly a religion, we save a base of our connection to country through our dreaming creation stories and who and the rules that flow through from that passed down. And that what binds us is what we call law, not L-A-W. Maybe we're rebelling against just English definitions or interpretations and we call it l-o-r-e so it's got a bit of more of a cultural impetus but that is also the law is the way we are things that come out from the, the dreaming and what we have to abide by so children coming through initiations girls doing their women's business and initiations and the young boys coming up takes many years are learning the law l-o-r-e and their roles responsibilities as they go through but it's also practical learning where the water holes are, where are your obligations, who can marry, who can't. I won't go anything much further. So it's the law sort of being handed down and very much for those who are initiated, who can speak and the uninitiated like me who are unborn or can't speak. I'm really looking forward to asking about the next, the next theme. This is something which just sounds amazing. And this is trade, ancient trade with people outside of Australia. Talk to me all about this. I know you've done a lot of stuff around this in, in, in the north of Australia. Well, here's another area which I don't think Australians, let alone the world, 
are too familiar with what I call Australia's first, what we call Australia's first international trade export. And I'm not a critic of Captain Cook. I am of the process of the recognition as those who write history that he was explored, discovered Australia. He was a brilliant navigator, did beyond what he was asked to do, but he didn't discover Australia, folks. We have been Northern Australians from Western Australia across the NT and the Gulf of Carpentaria up the side have been, had had visits from the Macassans from Makassar in Sulawesi in Indonesia, today Indonesia. And we know the Makassans who were part of a, we know the Chinese were exploring the world 12,000 plus or whatever, how many, you know, continually 5,000, 7,000 years ago around the world. The Macassans had met with the Aboriginal Northern Australians had developed over time relationships and permissions to get there and came each season to collect trepang, boil them up, dry them, put them on their prows and to go back to Sulawesi at the end of the season where they would then travel all the way up to China. Now, some say we know that these Macassans were working. It's more than just trade. It was an exchange. They're allowed to live there without getting speared. So they had to have rules and protocols. There was a lot of consultation going on. And we know the dates of about 480 years old, but we actually are going further research. We think it might go back to 1500 years. That's connection. And you go up to many of the groups up north, uh, Northern Australia, and you know there are ceremonies that sing and celebrate their brothers and sisters, the, Mac the Macassans. There are Aboriginal women who left with the Macassans to be married. Now this happened and, and the living memory of this stopping was because in 1911, white Australia governance enacted the white Australia policy, which restricted all the yellow peril, as they were calling it then. And, you know, people don't forget. That was the end of that. But the archaeology, the history, the connection of our people, thousands of Macassans were coming down. But you don't just come here and invade. The mobs would have speared them. They had relationships. In fact, our communities are singing ceremony to farewell the Macassans knowing that their religion was their God, was Allah, and in Muslim countries, they sang about Allah, wishing them home with their God and good speed, you know, this interaction. So it wasn't just trade, oh, here we go, I'll throw you this trepang and you can throw me, you know, fish. No, 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 there was relationships. Our people are really good at that. I mean, Dave, a couple of points on that, first of all. I mean, first of all, if it does go back 1,500 years, then that's, that's contemporary with, let's... But I, mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it didn't just happen. Passons were travelling for thousands, you know, for a long time, same with the Chinese. So it's just we didn't, as, you know, wider archaeologists developing here, didn't think of that. And, and that's fair enough, but they, they were narrowed by their own. Well, Dave, I mean, as you say, it, it is an if, but if... If so, that could be contemporary with the fall of the Western Roman Empire, let's say the Arab conquest of the Near East. And I guess it does make sense when you think of, let's say, uh, other events such as, you know, their populations on places like Eastern Micronesia, Khosrai. You've got the Polynesians at that time spreading eastwards. I mean, it makes sense that there was this contact. There was very much this contact between the Australian continent and Southeast Asia at that time. And so indigenizing the discipline of archaeology you know, respecting our elders, you know, what the works of Isabel McBride and all the Mungo elders to say, hey, you can't just dig up our sites, our history, it's part of us. It's important, it's a moral argument that is our country, is our heritage and you need permission. And, you know, plus what we talk about, our community archaeologists, which is what I'm doing these days and 
you know, 30 years after, 34 years after I did my honours, I'm doing my PhD about community archaeology, about making projects that are relevant to our people. It's not just about an EO academic who's trying to find the biggest and oldest and who has the biggest trowel. No, no, no. Humanity within an archaeological is important, the ethics of it, getting permissions. And then we can actually open up and learn of the people whose heritage it is, is and not just being the centre of the study because we have a lot of knowledge and the connection that can expand or our human knowledge of the world and I think now more than ever given the speed up of the climate change because of modern human actions it's, you know some indigenous knowledge about how to survive look after our kids ourselves our country is is, is so important and i think if we could use that macassans and the interactions of Sulawesi going on for so long whether it's for 880 years or 15 or more it's about relationships now more than ever, I think those lessons of our humanity and our association to country, our connection to country, is one we can share to the world about building these relationships so we're not having World War III in the next couple of weeks. And we can come together to use our brilliant technologies and minds for humanitarian sake, not just a few misogynistic men. And so, so one of your main missions today, if we're now focusing on that as we wrap up, the importance also a kind of astronomy, preserving Aboriginal astronomy techniques to learn more about astronomy today with modern techniques, how they can work together. In this area too, it's preserving these Indigenous Australian sites from the threats that they face to, so that we can learn more as a people today, so we can progress as a people today. People say, some say, oh, you know, the past repeats, you can't learn from the past, you can learn in the past. But it can give us an idea. It's also about the minds of people and how, you know, I think we can follow the behaviours of human nature that repeat themselves. Men in power too long, dictators, nothing good happens to a dictator. <laughs> That's pretty well true. <laughs> We've got a few around. But then nothing really happens if you've got a, a capitalist societal world that's got to an extreme where one or two men think they can own everyone else. Sometimes you want to wonder where a benevolent dictator isn't too bad. But if you've got laws that are about caring for country, caring for self, that's a basis, and that can be of man management to how we interact and relate to other people so everyone benefits. That's caring for country too. Caring for country, here we go. He said it's, it's coming full circle all the time. I mean, Dave, it's been wonderful chatting to you. How important is it for you, for an Indigenous Australian, to be telling these stories in our chat today about the ancient history of, of Australia and so much more? Firstly, for me personally, it's very important. I'm privileged to have the opportunity to get to where I am now to have these opportunities. I mean, for 30 years, I mean, we used to get people, commentators would get Indigenous actors to talk about an Indigenous voice to tell the archaeologist. This is, I'm in the 35th, fourth year. Now I'm getting recognised by my contemporaries and the rest. But it took why, you know, it was always the non-Indigenous. So we're getting there now. But I'm also just a phase in time. I've learned from my elders and everyone who's taught me, including wonderful uh, non-Indigenous archaeologists, academics. I'm also repeating stories that have been passed down and being taught to me. So there is the, the knowledges were there before, passed down. I'm just a passer. I'm a storyteller too now with what I've learned, but I've been given that gift of learning and by many. So I, that's where I see the responsibility I have to, you know, use those skills as I have in a Western context as well as what permissions smell is to be able to relate and to share it with the world a bit more, but also, you know, you can see the politic in me as well about, hey, folks, as my uncle Albert Mullet, from the head elder for the Gunai for many years and got their native title, my great mentor and adopted me as a son, said, 
son, look after the needy, watch the greedy. Whether that was a contemporary and old one. And I just I just get so excited about our the history of we have here and the realization now we have have the opportunity to voice it and share it and be the ownership of owners of that, the custodians of it. And of course, each area has their own custodians and their law people passing it down. And I'm just one with a science hat and an indigenous hat that feels passionate about it and has seen the destruction of it to such an extent for no reason other than greed that I, I speak out a lot of, about it and I get asked to speak out for it, to protect it. If you learn it, it embraces your life. It helps to embrace your life and your connection to country. Well, Dave, uh, keep speaking out about this. As you say, he's passing these stories down and the importance of preserving these sites uh, and so more. It, it sounds also, uh, to wrap this all up, I mean, the history of the journey of Australia's Indigenous archaeologists in the past few years, in the past half century or so, is, is pretty extraordinary in its own right. And also from what you've been saying during our chat today, there's excitement for Indigenous archaeology uh, in the future in the fact that we've only just scratched the surface. Oh, that's what I'm so excited about. So I see it my, at this point in time. Okay, we've got a few things to fix, like a lot. Let's get our legislation in place. Let's, this, come on, coming young fellas coming, people coming in. There's so much there. Once we get this right, that's all, let's get the old stuff happening properly. There's opportunities to explore, to learn, to embrace our tourism opportunities from our communities, showcasing these amazing sites and places and histories and, you know, connections. There's so many angles that, but also represent what is being modern Australian through its ancient, uh, through its, you know, its, its antiquity. So for me, that's exciting. The new techniques, look, the Black Lives Matter around the world and what's happening here, we're changing. Here I am on, you know, doing, you know, podcasts galore now. It took me 30 years to get recognised. I'm grateful. And I'm now my role as the whisperer between the old and the new, as we call it, my age to pass on the knowledge of the old to the new, who are, you know, smarter and brighter than, than perhaps I <laughs> will definitely more so, to use their skills and use their energies and creativeness to look at, you know, what else is out there. But I do, I argue, our knowledge of our past gives us connection to country, connection, more importantly, connection to self, connection to country, a sense of belonging and connectedness to those around us, certainly shared. It gives us a humanitarian base it does teach us lessons without doubt but you know new technologies new things but human nature doesn't change that much you know some in the, those who have a god biblical or you know you know and define the sins of man well those things don't change and that aspect of how the world evolves and the histories and things that have befall us are the same and having laws or a connectedness there can keep us well certainly kept us our mob going and surviving for so long something a gift i think we can share with the world well dave definitely share that gift with the world i mean it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today and all it goes for me to say is thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today thanks so much buddy well there you go there was our chat with dave johnston all about indigenous australian archaeology the first australians and so much more. It was great to get Dave on the podcast. It was a real pleasure to record that episode. And that also, I guess, brings an end to our small mini-series dotted over the past few months about Indigenous Australia. We've done astronomy, we've done songlines, and now we've done this episode with Dave. But don't you worry, we'll probably be doing more episodes on Indigenous Australia 
in due course, as we will on other areas of the ancient world we're yet to cover. Don't you worry, whether that's North America, South America, parts of Africa, and so on. We're going to get there. We're going to cover those areas in due course. You have my word. Now, if you want little hints as to what areas of the ancient world we're going to be covering next in the weeks ahead in upcoming podcasts, well, why not subscribe to our weekly Ancients newsletter? Every week, I'll be writing a little blurb for that newsletter, normally between 200 and 500 words, shall we say, giving you a bit of an update as to what's been happening, what episodes we're looking to release in the weeks ahead, little hints as to what ideas we're thinking of at that moment in time. So you get the first bite of the cherry, as it were. You're the first people to know what we're probably going to be covering next. So if that's of interest to you, if you want more Ancients content and little hints like that, then subscribe to our newsletter via a link in the description below. If you'd also be willing to leave us a lovely rating wherever you get your podcasts, be that Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else, that would also be greatly appreciated as we continue to spread the word of the ancients further and further. And that's enough from me, and I will see you in the next episode. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.